Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. In today's episode, we have KPMG cutting staff, LA County severs ties with Louis Brisbois, Rite Aid cuts ties with connected firms, SCOTUS rejects an appeal of a Louisiana gerrymandered map and an inventor concerned about judicial competency, and Column Tuesday, where I propose a 100% billionaire tax. Let's see if I get hate mail from defenders of billionaires and also read today's legal news. On this day, June 27th in legal history, the Federal Housing Administration came into being. The Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, was established in 1934 as part of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal program during the Great Depression. On June 27, 1934, the National Housing Act was passed, which functionally created the FHA. The primary goal of the FHA was to stabilize the housing market and increase homeownership opportunities for Americans. It did so by providing mortgage insurance to lenders, enabling them to offer loans with lower down payments and longer repayment terms if those loans complied with certain underwriting conditions. The FHA played a significant role in expanding homeownership, particularly for low-income and first-time homebuyers who were previously unable to secure traditional mortgages. It introduced standardized underwriting guidelines, making it easier for lenders to assess borrower creditworthiness. Additionally, the FHA established regulations for home construction and safety standards to improve housing conditions overall. During its early years, the FHA primarily facilitated the construction of single-family homes. However, after World War II, it expanded its program to include multifamily housing, aiding the construction of rental properties, and helping address housing shortages. Over time, the FHA's role evolved, and it became a vital institution in the mortgage market, ensuring the availability of affordable home loans. However, it faced criticism for some of its practices, including redlining, a discriminatory practice that disproportionately affected minority communities by denying them access to mortgage loans. Despite its shortcomings, the FHA continues to operate today as part of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, supporting affordable housing initiatives and promoting access to mortgage financing for a wide range of borrowers. KPMG LLP, one of the big four accounting firms, is planning to lay off nearly 5% of its U.S. workforce, amounting to approximately 2,000 positions, citing challenging economic conditions and low turnover rates. This marks the second round of layoffs for the firm in 2023 and deviates from its earlier strategy of offering incentives to retain employees during the, quote, great resignation trend. The job cuts are expected to be completed by late summer, and affected employees will receive severance packages and access to career services and healthcare benefits. KPMG's decision aligns with similar actions taken by competitors like Deloitte, Ernst & Young, and Grant Thornton, who have also reduced their consulting businesses due to declining demand. Despite the layoffs, KPMG reported a 14% increase in revenue for its U.S. affiliate in the previous year and expressed optimism about future growth opportunities. The firm's leaders noted a significant disparity between workforce size and the resources required to deliver services, citing economic headwinds and low attrition rates as contributing factors. While staff and tax and audit practices received immediate notifications, professionals in the advisory business and other areas were told that they would have to wait until later in the summer to learn their fate. Unlike its counterparts, PwC has not announced any layoffs driven by market conditions, but instead informed its staff to expect bonus pay and merit raises with increased in-office presence. The County of Los Angeles has severed ties with law firm Louis Brisbois, Bisgard, and Smith following the release of racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic emails by two former senior partners. The county will no longer assign new matters to the firm and will review existing cases to determine if they should be transferred to other outside lawyers on a case-by-case basis. County Counsel Dowen Harrison emphasized the importance of promoting inclusion, diversity, equity, and anti-racism in law firms contracted by the county. The LA County Council's office assigns cases to contract law firms for various governmental departments and has a portioned budget of around $186 million for the current fiscal year. Louis Brisbois had represented clients such as the L.A. County's Metropolitan Transportation Authority, Sheriff's Department, and Board of Supervisors. 
The firm is currently in discussions with the county, but declined to provide further comment. The development follows the departure of leaders from Louis Brisbois' labor and employment group, who left to launch a competing firm and subsequently prompted the release of offensive emails. Louis Brisbois, known for its work in insurance defense, has undergone leadership changes and is now led by managing partner Gregory Katz. Rite Aid, the drugstore chain burdened by $2.9 billion in debt, has ended its relationships with two law firms, Bradley Arendt, Bolt Cummings, and Littler Mendelssohn, due to personal connections between their partners and Rite Aid's former and current senior executives. The decision was made to ensure that related persons do not have a significant interest in the company's legal matters. Rite Aid cited the presence of the sister of its former chief legal officer at Bradley, which represented the company in opioid-related litigation, and a littler partner who is the brother of Rite Aid's chief financial officer. The company did not disclose the names of the lawyers involved. Rite Aid recently appointed Christian Bassett as its acting legal chief following the departure of its former chief legal officer, Paul Gilbert. Thomas Sabatino Jr., previously the top lawyer at Tenneco Inc., will succeed Gilbert as the legal group leader. Rite Aid is currently dealing with various legal issues, including opioid litigation and a growing debt load. Bondholders have engaged Paul Weiss Rifkind and Wharton and Garrison as they prepare for discussions on restructuring the company's massive debt. The U.S. Supreme Court has dismissed a Republican appeal to defend a Louisiana electoral map that was challenged as discriminatory. The map, drawn by the Republican-led state legislature, was accused of unlawfully discriminating based on race. A federal judge had ordered the creation of two congressional districts where black voters would be the majority, potentially benefiting Democratic chances in the upcoming election. The Supreme Court's dismissal allows the case to proceed before the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans for review before the 2024 congressional elections in Louisiana. Black voters and civil rights groups had sued, claiming that the map disenfranchised and discriminated against black Louisianians by packing them into one district and diluting their voting power in others. The ruling follows a similar decision in an Alabama case where the Supreme Court found that the Republican-drawn map violated the Voting Rights Act by diminishing the voting power of black Alabamians. The U.S. Supreme Court has also rejected an inventor's bid to challenge a patent ruling based on the grounds that one of the judges involved is facing a competency probe. Inventor Franz Wakefield argued that the investigation into Judge Pauline Newman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit raised concerns about due process and warranted a new hearing. However, the Supreme Court denied the petition without providing a written opinion. Wakefield had sued several tech companies for patent infringement, but the patent was invalidated in 2021 by a Delaware federal court and affirmed by a three-judge panel at the federal circuit that included Judge Newman. Wakefield claimed that the presence of a judge with a mental disability on the panel undermined the principle of a fair and impartial hearing. Judge Newman, who is 96 years old, has denied the claims and filed a lawsuit to halt the competency probe. And looky, looky, there's that pesky column I've been searching for. In this week's column, I lay out and compare some tax rates in the United States and Norway, pointing out that the top federal tax bracket in the U.S. for 2023 is 37%, while in Norway, it reaches 55.8%. But the top U.S. rate in 1944 was a staggering 94%, applied to income over $200,000, which is equivalent to about $3.5 million today. I acknowledge that advocating for such a high rate would be difficult. Instead, I propose a compromise, maintaining the current rate structure, but adding a 100% tax rate for individuals earning over $1 billion in a year. The proposed tax would apply to both income and capital gains without any loopholes or exceptions. At the outset, I acknowledge the complexity of implementing such a tax given the intricacies of the U.S. tax code, but I'd argue that the lack of proper regulation ensuring billionaires pay their fair share is a result of political unwillingness rather than administrative obstacles for reasons I'll touch on later. There are a limited number of billionaires who earn over $1 billion per year in income. It is an elite group, and taxing just this elite group would generate relatively modest revenue. That is, approximately $6 billion per year. 
However, there are massive unrealized gains held by billionaires, which amount to around $2.7 trillion in the U.S. I thus suggest implementing a mark-to-market tax requiring billionaires to recognize gains and losses on their investments at the end of each tax year. By applying a mark-to-market tax rate of 100% on gains and income above $1 billion, I argue that it would prevent the further growth of billionaires' wealth and could generate significant revenue. For example, if the year ended today, it could raise around $335 billion from the top billionaires alone. I conclude by highlighting the ease of administering such a targeted tax due to the relatively small number of billionaires in the U.S. There's about 725 of them. That said, the main obstacle to implementing a 100% tax rate is not administrative feasibility, but rather the political challenges and resistance from a nation that aspires to wealth. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics touched on today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or story suggestions, you can find us on Mastodon on the esq.social instance. I'm at Andrew and my co-host Gina is at Gina. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not represent those of any organization we may be affiliated with. Nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it is explicitly not legal advice. Reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast player. We'd appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in the story we cover, consider sending them the episode. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever you get your finely crafted podcasts. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, remember, don't waste your time defending people that would turn you into hot soup if it made them an extra dollar. 